0: Hey friends! I hope you're all staying as safe and healthy and comfortable as possible, and that you're taking care of all the people and pets and plants that are important to you. Uh, You're listening to the People Are the Enemy podcast. I'm the host of the show. My name is Andy Mascola. If this is your first time listening, welcome! I've been faithfully recording and making at least one brand new episode of this program available every week since January 1st, 2018. If you like a podcast host who's reliable and consistently brings you something new and different, I'm your guy! On some episodes, I'll speak with an interesting, creative person. Sometimes my segment of the show is just me talking with you and telling you stories and playing you funny clips and trying to make you smile. Earlier this year, we added a great new segment called Rachel's Chart Chat, in which our friend Rachel from Des Moines will analyze and find gems in billboard charts from the past. There are no ads on People Are the Enemy, and there is no Patreon set up for it. The only thing I've ever asked of listeners is if you love the show, and if you'd like to help support it and myself monetarily, and get yourself or the reader in your life some quality fiction, please consider purchasing any or all of my books. I'm the author of nine novels that are all currently available worldwide in both ebook and paperback formats via Amazon. And if you don't like To use Amazon, but you do like ebooks, you can find all nine of my titles in ebook format at Google Play. Just type my last name, M-A-S-C-O-L-A. That's how you'll find me on Google Play. If you prefer to read your books in a physical format, but you don't use Amazon, you can find most of my stories at Barnesandnoble.com. BN.com if you absolutely can't wait. If you've already purchased any or all of my novels, thank you, thank you, thank you. I sincerely appreciate your generous patronage. And with all that out of the way, here's the quirky theme song. people are the enemy listeners this is episode 245 of the people are the enemy podcast thank you so much for checking it out thanks for spending time with me you're looking well our guest danger slater is the author of the novels impossible james he digs a hole puppet skin and i will rot without you a work for which he won the wonderland book award for best novel in 2016 danger's latest book is called moonfellows it's about a New Jersey gravedigger who, in 1906, is taken by the United States government against his will and sent on an ill-fated trip to the moon. Danger graciously provided me with an advanced copy of his new novel, and I very much enjoyed it and have been looking forward to speaking with him. So without further ado, let's talk now with Danger Slater. Hello Danger, are you there, sir? I'm here. Oh, right on. Welcome back oh. to People Are the Enemy. I'm so appreciative that you would talk with me again.
1: Yeah, I'm happy to be here, man. Three years. I it's know, been,
0: right? I We've been through a lot.
1: Yeah, you, apparently there's this thing called COVID that's happened since the last time we talked. Have you heard of this? Never it's heard of it. It's terrible. <laughs> <laughs> I'll have to avoid it. Do I need to wear a mask? Uh, yeah, but but uh, I would suggest something like a like a Jason mask or or maybe like a, a Freddy Krueger mask. <laughs> <laughs> About.
0: before we get into it danger i was hoping you'd read the first chapter of Moonfellows for us i really felt like it sets the tone for the whole story which i would describe as often gross but largely sweet and funny would you would you help us out with that yeah sure sure awesome uh,
1: awesome thank cool. you so
0: much the floor is yours all
1: right chapter one there once was a man who lived on the moon my mother told me this story often back when i was just a boy Though the details sometimes varied, that first line never changed. She said that the man on the moon lived in an old castle he fashioned for himself out of the rocks and the dust and debris. Whatever materials he could scavenge, which wasn't very much, he was alone and the moon was a desolate place. But his castle had buttresses that extended like shoulder blades and spires like fingers that pointed straight up towards the star-freckled sky. The moon was as flat as a parking lot, my mother told me. It might have taken him a thousand years, but this man could construct his castle as large as he chose. I once asked her how he got stuck on the moon in the first place. She said the man had been up there forever, that it was just the way things are, the way they always will be. Some nights the wind would blow in off the Saskatchewan River and rattle the sides of our cabin so hard it sounded like someone was slamming their fists against the door. That's just the man on the moon breathing, my mother told me. All air comes from his lungs. It reminds us he's alive. And when the clouds would roll in and the rain would fall, my mother said it was because the man on the moon was crying. She said his tears filled our streams and our lakes and our oceans. She said the man on the moon was sad, that he was supposed to be sad, that his sadness filled our well. So generous was his sorrow that nobody ever had to go thirsty. Because of him, plants grew, fish swam, and whales hummed to each other beneath the sea. When I huffed and I puffed and I refused to do my chores, my mother would remind me, That the man on the moon was a giant with big googly eyes that bulged like periscopes out of his head. And from his castle, he could see everything I did, big and small. He knew all my secrets. She told me that if I didn't clean my room at least once a week, the man on the moon would reach his long, lanky arms down from the sky, snatch me out of my bed, and eat me while I slept. I didn't like the idea of this strange man watching me all the time. Even in my most private moments, even when I thought I was by myself... I begged my mother to protect me, to build our walls thicker so he couldn't see through them. But she would only laugh. As long as I did as I was told, I'd always be safe, she assured me. The man on the moon only ate mi- messy children, she said. Messy children tasted the best.
0: <laughs> right on. Thank you so much for doing that. I really yeah. appreciate it. Danger, the narrator of, of Moonfellows, lives in New Jersey. What made you decide to make this character from Jersey?
1: Uh, well, I'm from New Jersey.
0: You are. You live in Oregon now, don't you?
1: I do I well There's there's this kind of uh made up city that this that this that this story starts in and this this river called the Sasquatchee River that is this town is less located next to and it's kind of this the way I always pictured it in my head is this kind of jam jammed up version of New Jersey like my hometown in New Jersey and uh Portland Oregon where I live now <laughs> so I kind of invented my own city that's uh An unnamed city next to a river That is kind of a a, You know, an amalgamation of these two places I've been Spent most of my life But the reason I said it in New Jersey Is because he has to get to He's got to get to Washington, D.C. at some point And they didn't have airplanes at that point Well, they did But they were not very passenger-friendly It was more like, you know, Orville Wright Sitting in a little milk crate (laughs) Flowing through the sky
0: that makes that makes sense. All of that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Danger. the Last time we spoke was back in 2019, and I'd asked you what you thought the worst way to die would be. Do you remember what you'd said?
1: Not at all. What did, <laughs> <laughs> what did I say?
0: <laughs> you talk. This is wild, man. Uh, you talked about like being a dog in Russia and being put on like in a space capsule and just sent off into space for you know never to return. Basically, just an experiment. So yeah. in in preparation for a talk today, I was re-listening to that 2019 discussion. And when you told me back then, three years ago, how the Russian dog being sent into space was what you considered the worst way to die, I had an aha moment. I have to imagine your fascination with this early space exploration experiment must have been a, a planted seed and in part was used as inspiration for Moonfellows. Was was Moonfellows a story you'd been hoping to write for a long time?
1: Uh, I don't know where I was in the book at that point, but I must have been working on it, or at least germinating the idea to some degree. I don't really take breaks in between, you know, books or writing projects. So that was the f- this is the first one after that. So I had to have been in in this book. Uh, so it, I, it was just, must have been on my mind. I, you know, I think a lot about the, like the existent, I try, I try to think about things that f- I find scary. And like, that's, it's a lot of this kind of stuff, like space and not really knowing things, <laughs> not having answers to things and being forced to do things against your will without explanation. Um, all of which is kind of encapsulated in that, that Russian dog that yeah. <laughs> they sent out to space
0: for sure, for sure, and loneliness.
1: Yeah, it's a big theme in my books.
0: There's a there's a beautifully uncredited poetic passage in the first pages of Moonfellows that reads, "As the world keeps spinning, as I drift further away, I still think about you, all of you." Where did yeah. where did this come from?
1: I that well, I my publisher said. Do you want to dedicate the book to anybody and that's what i sent him in return. i wrote a little poem i guess so that's you that it, that's yours yeah i wrote that that's
0: beautiful it really is
1: yeah you know because a lot of a lot of the books about kind of letting go of of things and people and you know when you're trying to think of i'm trying to think of who to dedicate a book to And I was like, there's been a lot of people that have come in and out of my life and have disappeared. And I, or I've disappeared from them because I've gone somewhere else. And that's kind of the theme of the book. So that was just my way of dedicating it to all the people in my past.
0: I really love that, uh, love that passage. It's really beautiful. Uh, Moonfellow's narrator and protagonist is a gravedigger named Franklin Crumb. I, I love that he's a gravedigger and I am fascinated with this occupation. And and even before reading Moonfellows, I'd been fantasizing about making a secondary character in the novel I intend to write next year, a gravedigger when creating the Franklin Crumb character, had you had a similar fascination with gravediggers or, or was it Franklin's occupation? Was his occupation more a decision based on his role in the story? Uh,
1: Well, a little bit, a little bit of both of those, you know, he, there's a practical reason why he's chosen For this mission by the government He gets sent to the moon because he's He's not just a gravedigger He's the best gravedigger He's very quick <laughs> He's He digs holes very quickly And they need him to ex- excavate something That's why they're sending him up there um, The reason I went with a gravedigger Is just because it seems like a weird Lonely occupation And this kind of Closeness to death But this kind of workman's like view of it. Right. So he's not like he's, he's surrounded by in his life before he goes to the moon, he's surrounded by just kind of, you know, tombstones. (laughs) He works by himself. He digs holes and people are sad and grieving all around him, but it's very much a practical thing that he's not connected to because it's how he pays the bills. There's a scene early on where he's talking with his Wife and she, he's like, oh, there's there's been a train derailment and I got died. They got to dig twenty five graves today and she's like, oh, that's good and he's like, yeah, it's good. You know, maybe a few more of these and we can get a new house or so or have another kid. Whatever he says to her.
0: Oh, yeah, I think so, I think he thinks himself something like not my my best day. Like meaning like the number of graves I
1: <laughs> dug in like a single yeah. day. But,
0: <laughs> but he's he still paid, strangely he proud.
1: paid So the you know the bigger the massacre, the, the better it is for him financially.
0: That's so funny, man. I just um it had me thinking of all sorts of things. Are you a Daniel Johnston fan at all? The musician Daniel Johnston? Oh, yeah, Johnston. yeah, I love him. Do you, do you know about how he was in love with this woman and she, he he had his heart broken because she went off with the gravedigger? Do you know about that?
1: I didn't remember that he was a gravedigger. I know I know the story about with the lady. I, I mean, it's kind of a, a central part of that documentary about him, but I forgot that he was a gravedigger. Yeah. That's pretty.
0: Yeah, and I always just thought that was such a strange occupation to have in like the 20th century, but <laughs> but no, it's still necessary. And I think especially where he was, um, that uh, that was something that, that you did. But uh, I, I always thought about that and how kind of oddly um, sad and romantic it is that
1: <laughs> well, that he lost
0: his I, girl to a grave digger, you know. <laughs> yeah,
1: you know, when I was writing when I was writing the book, I was thinking about how we think of you know the books about like transients and time passing and stuff too, along with this loneliness. And we think about the, our graves as being these resting places where we they that we put ourselves or we put our loved ones, and then they sit there for time immemorial with this stone to remember them. But uh, the stones will fade to the weather and everyone is going to forget about this grave at some point anyway. And not only that, but these plots of land where they bury people, like, they get full. Yes. (laughs) They run out of space. And then what they do is get rid of the old bones so they can put new bones in there and keep making money.
0: Yes. It's really (laughs) creepy. Yeah. (laughs) I was thinking about that and then I was thinking about do you know Beat Happening? Do you know the band Beat Happening at all?
1: No, I'm not
2: familiar.
0: They're, they're, they're an Olympia, Washington band. Um, they came from this, this uh, scene called the k Records scene, this guy Calvin Johnson, and who was a big influence to uh, Kurt Cobain, of all people, because he was obviously from the Washington area. But very amateurish, and that was kind of their whole thing, where it was sort of like... Uh, you know where punk was not about uh, proficiency so much as uh, great ideas, you know, and 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 um and passion and energy, and they and and beat happening sort of came from the school of just bringing things back to making things very simple. And they had this song called "Gravediggers Blues," and I was thinking about that, and I just uh I was listening to it, and I was like, I wonder if I wonder if Danger Slater's heard "Gravediggers Blues." You might check it out.
1: It's a great I, I'm, I'm absolutely going to check it it's out. A fun one. Like yeah, I. It is. It's a thing that, you know, people don't want to think about death and stuff. I don't I personally don't want to, uh, you know, aside from when I'm writing books about it. But (laughs) um, someone's doing all the work on that end. And we don't we don't really talk too often about it or think too often about it, Uh, especially the grunt work. You know, the, the mortician gets to or the preacher doing the little speech that makes everybody feel better or at least makes them feel okay with. You know, having to put someone in, into the ground, but behind all that, there are people who are like cutting open a body to like stuff it full of crap to keep it from rotting before the funeral, yeah. and there's people who are digging holes, and they're just like blue collar guys with a backhoe.
0: Yeah, and then there are people like you know with like makeup, you know, putting on makeup like as if you're you know and doing hair and whatnot, you know, of those uh, yeah. of those uh, of those bodies to present them, wild. Yeah, it was like, what was that movie, My Girl? Remember that movie? Yeah, vaguely. It, like it was like
1: Jamie Lee Curtis was like a makeup artist for dead bodies or something.
0: Yeah, spoiler alert, the girl gets stung by bees and dies. I think it's, it's like, it's, I know the movie's like 35 years old now, but uh, I guess spoiler alert, I don't know. Yeah. But, uh, okay, all right, anyway, so maybe we should move on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's getting dark already. <laughs> it's getting dark. I was like, I had all these it's, things it's to a talk comedy about. Too. I too. like there's a list so many of all... jokes in here. I had all these like gravedigger things so I was like, oh yeah, we should talk about that. And then all of a sudden I'm like, wait a second, this is go- <laughs> 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 This is going dark. Look at there's nobody else I'd rather go here with than you, Danger, honestly. Danger, Moonfellows begins in the year 1906, but during the story, decades pass, and in your novel, the director Stanley Kubrick helps the US government fake the moon landing. Do you believe the 1969 moon landing was faked?
1: I, uh, I personally don't, but I also can see how it, why people would believe that. Yeah. Because it, it does look fake. When you look at that footage, it does not look real. <laughs> I don't know why they would use Kubrick, though. Like I know he was like this, this great filmmaker and stuff, but I feel like it, you'd be better off grabbing some unknown.
0: Yeah, no kidding. Yeah, yeah that, I, I
1: always it's, think not about, like, it's not like it's like got that Kubrick symmetry in there. No, you, know, you that's don't have too, like Neil Armstrong <laughs> looking, giving that Kubrick stare, you know, like fucking like an Alex and, and Clockwork Orange or something with that the head down and the eyes. I think be, that that might be a tip off.
0: I always think like with conspiracy theories, I'm like, how many people would it ha- take to pull this off? And then how many of them would be able to keep that a secret for like 50 years? Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean?
1: You know, like, that's why there's no conspiracies, man. They're too complicated. Exactly. Like the real conspiracies well, we heard about because someone fucking blabs.
0: Yeah, <laughs> yeah. That's exactly it. And with Kubrick, <laughs> if you ever see any kind of documentary on Kubrick and see how he works, or listen to anybody who's talked to, I'm sorry, who's worked with him, you know how fastidious he is. And uh, you know, with take after take after, you know, yeah. there, there's no way anybody would be able to keep it a secret. <laughs> But there was, Did, um, I
1: don't know if you ever Rick made it. Neil Armstrong do 125 takes <laughs> until he was crying and in the right distressed emotional state <laughs> to, oh my God. to really kind of capture what it would be like to bounce across a moon.
0: Did you ever see this documentary called, I think it was called Room 237, and it was... Oh, like, yeah. Oh, it's so great. But there's that whole <laughs> thing where one of the, the people, one of the, the, the unseen narrators in that documentary was, for listeners who don't know, it's it's a documentary all about The Shining, and it's it only uses footage from Kubrick films, and you never see the people, the narrators. And the narrators of this film all have a different theory on what Stanley Kubrick was trying to communicate in this movie, The Shining. And one of the people believes that he was trying to communicate uh, that he'd fake the moon landing. <laughs> and there are references like to... Uh, the little boy's sweater, which he had like a, a like the Apollo rocket on it said USA. So there were things like, anyway, um,
1: I, I imagine that people like, so people are in that documentary. are Like you see the way the le- the hallways are laying out, uh, when Danny's taking his little bike around the hallways of the motel of the overlook, they don't connect. It's a labyrinthine and they, they're just they, you know, the logic of it doesn't connect. So, uh, this is Kubrick kind of, you know, getting into the psychological nature of what the hotel's doing. But I, I imagine Kubrick is just like, ah, oh, shit, my hotel, my, my, always didn't connect to each other. Like, it maybe it didn't even occur to him. Yeah, because, you, you, uh, you can know, imagine just... that
0: if he'd seen that documentary. I think it was, I think it was released posthumously. But like, yeah, these things that these these errors that they point out would probably have driven him mental. Like the two different yeah. colored typewriters. Yeah. <laughs> no.
1: Like you know, not not everything is 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 meant to be uh, a metaphor for something. Sometimes it's just a continuity error.
0: <laughs> yeah, exactly. No, it's well put. Well put. Uh, speaking of films, you're you're a big Nicolas Cage fan. Have you seen the last the last film uh, that he was in that meta film?
1: Oh yeah, yeah. How, that was, pretty how fun. was
0: it? I hadn't seen it.
1: It's pretty fun. It's not. It's not. Um... It's not as mind blowing as I wish it was. I wish it got deeper into like the Nicolas Cage lore, but it is more like dipping the toes into it instead. Okay, if that makes sense. Sure. Yeah,
0: I I, I know that you're a big Charlie Kaufman fan, also, and uh, sure. Since the last time we spoke, uh, Charlie Kaufman had released his first novel, Aunt Kind, Had you had a chance <clears throat> to read it?
1: I I have it's 800 pages.
0: Yes, I, I also it read a,
1: it. Yeah, it's a punishing novel. No, a doubt. no doubt,
0: you no know, doubt.
1: By design, though, I think it's meant to kind of punish you, uh, I, on a metatextual level, right? Like we, he know he knows what he's doing with with by writing this this insane sprawling book.
0: <laughs> Your work has been associated with bizarro fiction. Would you consider what what Charlie Kaufman did there, bizarro fiction?
1: Oh, absolutely. All Probably his too. films are, you know, when you when you kind of cross that line into a different version of reality and you don't necessarily call attention to the thing that makes it different from your reality, it's just something all the characters kind of live with and accept. That's kind of what makes Bizarro Bizarro. Sure.
0: I think I think Antkind was very much that with there there was it just got so weird and so um, so out there at times. And, and I was thinking to myself, this, this could never be a film. Of course, I thought that about, you know, all sorts of things that eventually became films. But uh, yeah, that was a wild book.
1: It was very much like Dostoevsky, though, right? Like, it's it was just like this long novel where a character is just kind of confronting all these <laughs> psychological torments and being punished at every turn.
0: <laughs> yes, <laughs> that's a good way to put it. Just, uh, I, I know you're a Vonnegut fan, too. I, I'd once heard Vonnegut, talk about how he loved to just like destroy a character you know what I mean just like you take a protagonist and not literally but just kind of you know just punish them with all these life happenings that just kind of you know make things so difficult in order to try to have him or her you know kind of undig themselves from this this torment do you have a favorite I don't think I ever asked you I know last time we spoke uh we talked about Vonnegut a little bit if only because we uh-huh. were talking about authors and auteurs who put themselves in their own work and which Vonnegut did a couple times but I never asked you do you have a favorite Vonnegut book Uh,
1: I do but you know what it's changed over the years I've read all of them multiple times he's one of the he's you know such a big fan that I keep you know different eras and, and periods of my life I find myself returning to the books to kind of see what else you know what else they speak to me to in me do they still are they still as important to me are the are the ones I like the ones I still like you know and um, my original favorite one was Sirens of Titan, which is one of his early novels um, which has a lot of kind of I guess echoes of moonfellows in it there's a, a character who's Fated to kind of zip across the universe into all these different places, and he can't really do anything about it. He can only follow this kind of track that is laid out for him, and it's not a very happy, <laughs> you know, going for this character. And that was my favorite when I was like 18, uh, 19, when I was first getting into Vonnegut. But when I reread all the books a couple of years ago, I found Galapagos was one of my favorites. and. That's one that doesn't get talked about no. as much as his famous, his famous novels like Slaughterhouse five or cat's cradle. Both are, those are great. Um, but Galapagos is one of his later novels. He wrote it in the eighties and it's about this, uh, it takes place over three days where this, this group of people get sh- there. They all kind of descend on the Galapagos islands for this cruise that is being canceled because there's a global pandemic happening. Um, but they don't know it because they're kind of isolated on on, on this island. Uh, it's also having this political upheaval. And they all end up on this cruise ship that accidentally sets sail and crashes. And they're all alone together. There's only like five or six of them on the Galapagos Island. And they are now going to – the rest of the human race dies. And now these six people are the the new progenitors for the whole human race. So throughout the the book, it's – the 3 days of them getting to this island is 90% of the book and then the next million years is the last 10% of the book
0: <laughs> <laughs> i remember reading it i read it my cousin loaned it to me and i read it years and years ago the one thing that stood out about that book and it's i wouldn't say it's one of my favorites but it did stick with me and the sociopathic character in that book is the one thing that consistently stood out i'm always i'm always intrigued when an author Tries to get in the head of a psychopath or a sociopath and to, to, like, you know, I'm always amazed that, like, Brett Easton Ellis made American Psycho. I'm like, how the hell do you live in that character's head for as long as he did, you know, to try to create that character? But there's a, there's a, if I'm remembering correctly, in Galapagos, there's a sociopathic like character in the book who's just very, um, you know, not a good person. It just, is, am I remembering that correctly?
1: Yeah, he does a couple uh, very intentionally cruel things to the other characters in the book. Yeah. Um, just just for the sake of being cruel.
0: And he's just kind of like that's... a schlubby, unassuming kind of person.
1: Yeah, um, I, you know, I don't recall every detail either. I think he was like a lawyer or something. Yeah, I just remember him
0: being described as like overweight and balding <laughs> yeah. with glasses. Kind of, and I had this image in my head. And whenever I think of Galapagos, that's the first place I go <laughs> to that yeah. character. And I always think like, gosh, that's a tough person to write or just to, to kind of to To get that right, I mean, if you're an altruistic individual, you know, um, to try to get in the head of somebody who's, um, you know, just not not a good person or just sociopathic, I have to imagine is is uh, a challenge in some cases. And then uh, yeah, anyway, uh, the mother. You, you know, you know, you ahead, know
1: I, I just want to please. say this about Galapagos too, um, because. Yeah, like you're saying, it's not – it doesn't stick out in a lot of people's minds as, like, his best or most memorable work. But because it's so late in his career, I think it deserves a second look because he is – his prose in that book in the way he writes is, like, at top form. And I think because I read it a couple of years ago after now – I've now become a writer myself. Like, I was like, this is the best written of his books.
0: That's interesting.
1: Like, Prose-wise, at least yeah. in my opinion. yeah. Very cool, very cool. Yeah.
0: Did you ever see that um, those rankings where where vonnegut went and he like ga- graded all his his works?
1: <laughs> yeah, I don't, I don't really recall uh, what it was, but it's that's a very vonnegut esque thing. Yeah, to do.
0: <laughs> and and he was you know he was he was extremely diplomatic about it. And I remember like I think my two favorites are 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 I guess the obvious where I I love Slaughterhouse Five mm-hmm. and I love breakfast of champions i don't know if i've ever laughed harder out loud reading a book than i did breakfast of champions and yeah. i think and i was i was always perplexed because in that grading i think he gave he gave a breakfast of champions like a c <laughs> <laughs> and i was like are you kidding it's brilliant you know but you know yeah. but he's tough on himself
1: that is the that's probably the first book where someone was like really breaking the rules of reality in a way that I thought was kind of like fun and novel. Not, you know, like novel as in novelty.
0: I know uh, what you mean. You mean like with the drawings and with the, yeah, just absolutely. Yeah, with writing
1: himself as a character and kind of, he's he's like, he's got Kilgore Trout in there who's like a proxy for him, but then also he's also a character.
0: Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, you think about the things that he wrote about um, just like – He'd state things absolutely matter of factly about America, and they were just like the most hard to hear, cruel things about you know the way we treat each other, and uh, especially minorities in this country. And he just stated as if it was just this thing, you know, and it was just like that's then that's the way they are, <laughs> meaning that's yeah. the way, that's the way people are, or we that's the way Americans treat. Um, others, you know, and it's, and it was, uh, it's kind of, it's kind of shocking and funny, like darkly, darkly funny, obviously. Yeah. But, uh, And I, I, his most
1: funny. famous quote from Slaughterhouse-Five, so it goes. So
0: it goes. Right? Like yeah. every
1: time a character dies, so it goes. <laughs> <You know? laughs> you know, let's, don't get, let's not get too like worked up about this, you know, this is how it goes.
0: Yeah. Very dark stuff, but a uh, wonderful, wonderful bibliography that that man has.
1: Probably my well, not probably 100% my biggest influence, uh, writing myself as Kurt
0: Vonnegut. Yeah, he's a wonderful, wonderful uh, person to to, uh, to read. Uh, yeah. Danger, the mother of Moonfellow's narrator tells him, quote, a story is a lie that tells the truth. I, I love this. Did that line come from somewhere in particular, or is that...
1: That line came from a book my uncle gave me, like, 15 years ago, or maybe 20 years ago, uh, for Christmas. It was a book about writing. Um... I, 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 you know, I think I had like exercises I, just as someone who's been writing now for, I've, I've been a published author for, I think 12 years. Um, these kind of books I never found helpful <laughs> personally, but, uh, people would give them to me constantly, especially when I was in my early, in my, my late teens and early twenties, when they found out this was something I was interested in. Um, and I tried reading a lot of them, and that, that one that line in particular stuck out in that book because they were trying to talk about what fiction and storytelling actually meant. and um, yeah, it's about you know coming up with something to get to an even deeper truth, an even deeper meaning that you can't get to by just telling the truth.
0: That's, that's what I took for, from it. So you, you believe a story is a lie that tells the truth.
1: Oh yeah. I, yeah, absolutely. Uh, You know, as someone who I I read and watch movies constantly, like every day I will sit down and read for an hour or I watch a movie almost every day, or at least like some sort of narrative television show. I try to consume art. I I consume art like it's my freaking job, right? Like it's just something that I I love. And, And in a lot of ways I get to experience not just all these, all the the world and all these worlds that can exist, but like, it connects me to my own emotions in a way that it's difficult to do on a daily basis. Like, I don't normally have emotional roller coasters that that I'm on throughout the day. Uh, You know, especially since I want to get through my day and, you know, try to keep my keel even. So I, I, you know, as I get older, it's even harder to feel emotions because you have more on your plate with every passing day, but you get to watch a movie and you can have a simulated experience and you could kind of come to a place uh, and shine a light on, a, on something that you might not have been within yourself that you might not have been necessarily even trying to do or, or looking at. And it's kind of a magical thing that stories do awesome well put yeah
0: danger this has been so much fun thank you so so much for talking with me again i really enjoyed Shit. this conversation
1: are we are, are we already getting to the end this is going so quick yeah
0: i want to i want to tell folks <laughs> the book is called Moonfellows. it's available right now uh check it out you go to moon facts that's f-a-c-t-s moon uh and uh or get it wherever you get your books i suppose yeah. but uh I I really, really appreciate your time today. Thank you. Thank you.
1: I I appreciate you having me on again, Andy. This was a lot of fun.
0: Oh, good. Good. I'm glad you had fun. Uh, Folks, I'm going to hand things over to our friend, Rachel, from Des Moines with the Chart Chat. Take it away, Rachel.
2: Hello, and welcome back to Rachel's Chart Chat for another week. Thanks to everyone who listened last week, especially any Tom Sharpling fans who decided to come back for more. And, Tom, if you're listening, thanks for spreading the word about Mr. Jaws to the Double Threat community i like to say everything is connected i also had a nice chat about billy idol with my friend tony and wow what a solid run he had hit wise for labor day weekend sirius xm 70s on 7 didn't play their usual old casey casem 8040 40 episode of the week rather they ran a listener voted top 1000 countdown i didn't catch much of it at the time but i just checked on the Sirius website and it's available in 11 parts on the on-demand So let's jump right into the 80s chart this week we were on september 4th of 1982. starting off at number 92 is words by missing persons and this would make it to number 42. Uh, missing persons was formed in la by dale bazio on vocals her husband terry bazio on drums and warren cucarolo on guitar. Uh, and the Bosio's had actually be- met while working with Frank Zappa on some of his different projects. So I said it went to 42. I was honestly surprised th- that Missing Persons had never had a top 40 hit. They, they got made to number 42 twice, but they just seemed so uh, iconically 80s, like just a big group from the era. And uh, maybe they've come to be more popular after the decade, people rediscovering them. I'm not sure. Uh, but this song was off of the Spring Session M album. At number 81 is Your Daddy Don't Know by the group Toronto, and they were from Toronto. And this is their album, their third album, Get It On Credit. And this album also has the original version of What About Love, which was later covered by Heart, uh, but members of Toronto originally wrote that one. And uh, this song will make it to number 77, but as you can imagine, they did a lot better in their native Canada, had much more chart success there. At number 78 is the song Nobody by Sylvia. And this is another one of your country crossover hits. This song is sometimes misattributed to Crystal Gale. Um, just another one of those mix-ups that people have. Not unlike the time we found out that William Devon's Be Thankful for What You Got is sometimes uploaded incorrectly as Diamond in the Back by Curtis Mayfield. I would say play this song for your partner if you suspect that their work husband or work wife is more than just a joke. And uh, The nobody, it's sort of like in Family Circus when they had Not Me and I to Know. So you know what that's all about those little ghosts at number 76 is love come down by Evelyn champagne King. And this would make it to number 17 and Evelyn was born in New York, but raised in Philadelphia. And I read on Wikipedia that her childhood nickname was bubbles. And then she adopted champagne when she released her first album in 1977. Love Come Down, just a great R&B song. It like, seems like I could tune into Sirius XM 50 and I would hear that one. It just puts you in a good mood. And number 66 is Don't Fight It, which is a duet between Kenny Lockins and Steve Perry. And this made it also to number 17. Which is shocking to me, considering how huge those guys were in the 80s. It couldn't get any higher than that. Uh, This was, uh, I first heard of this one in Yacht Rock Web Series Episode 4. And uh, it was off of Kenny Loggins' fourth album, High Adventure. It was nominated for a Grammy for Best Rock Performance by a duo or group. And I was looking at the personnel on the song, uh, and I was surprised to see uh, Mr. Pat Benatar, a.k.a. Neil Neil Giraldo, uh, played on guitar on this song. At number 50 is Planet Rock by Africa Bombada and Soul Sonic Force. This would eventually get two more places, up to number 48. Uh, This song is very historic in terms in the timeline of hip-hop. Africa Bombada had been a DJ at parties, and he liked to play an eclectic mix of music. This led him to discovering groups like Kraftwerk, Yellow Magic Orchestra, and Gary Newman. And uh, he was starting to make records, and he uh, worked with producer DJ Arthur Baker and synth player John Roby. To make this song. And the word is that it's not a sample, but a re-recorded version of Kraftwerk's Trans Europe Express. Um, But even though it wasn't literally a sample, they still had to pay Kraftwerk a dollar for every single. Um, But once that agreement was reached, the label Tommy Boy just increased the price of the single by a dollar. According to soundonsound.com, it was the first use of Roland TR-808 beats in hip-hop. And the group didn't have a, one of those 808s, but they turned to the Village Voice newspaper and they found an ad from a man named Joe. And the ad, quote, man with drum machine, $30 a session. And he programmed the 808 with the B of Kraftwerk's numbers. There's so much more to read up on this song. It truly is historic. It led to electro funk and, ele- and electro as a genre. Definitely worth reading up on. Um, and the fun fact for this one is that it's used in the Lego Batman movie uh, when they're at the Justice League party. So as you could tell, that was the instrumental version of Planet Rock, but I put the real version on the Chartfix playlist. At number twenty-eight is "I Keep Forgetting Every Time You're Near" by Michael McDonald. This will make it to number four, and this is off of his first solo album. If that's what it takes. Some of the other musicians on this song included Steve Lukather and Jeff Porcaro from Toto, Louis Johnson from The Brothers Johnson, and Michael's sister Maureen McDonald. And the song would go on to be sampled on 1994's Regulate by Warren G. featuring Nate Dogg. And again, to mention Yacht Rock web series, they had an episode dramatizing how that might have occurred. At number 14 is The Alan Parsons Project with Eye in the Sky. This would eventually make it to number three. And I included this on the pics because it feels like this. Maybe it's just me projecting, but it feels like one of those songs that you might feel familiar or you halfway recognize it, but you don't know who sings it or what the title is. Um, so I just wanted to mention it here. And uh, I first kind of became acquainted with this song. There was a gentleman that used to be on Twitter. he was at at Loam Bagel and he recorded a version of it himself, like singing for his mom. And it just, it was kind of an odd choice, but I thought it was really beautiful and it kind of led me to, you know, to know about the song and to enjoy it myself. Our last song from 82 is Even the Nights Are Better by Air Supply. And it's at number five this week and that would be as high as it would get. Uh, but this was their seventh consecutive top five single on the U.S. Hot 100. Um, I picked it because I really like it. I have memories of listening to it in childhood. My mom had the Air Supply Greatest Hits tape, um, and I thought maybe it's not as well known as some other Air Supply songs. I wasn't sure, but just another really pretty ballad from them, and uh, yeah, I, I, well, a fun fact for Air Supply, I always assumed they were Australian, but it's one Brit and one Aussie, so I think must be something going on. They're able to trick Americans, like people think the Bee Gees are Australian or uh, Olivia Newton-John, but they're technically, from the British Isles, uh, the Isle of Man and England, respectively. Alrighty, well, that's all for me this week. Thanks so much. Back to you, Andy.
0: Thank you, Rachel. Awesome stuff. This has been episode 245 of the People Are the Enemy podcast. Our theme song is Walrus Love by Nokia Ocean. You can find that song and more at pizzapuppies.bandcamp.com. My name is Andy Mascoli. You can purchase my novels via Amazon and other online book retailers in both paperback and ebook formats for as little as $1.99. Thank you for listening. Thank you for subscribing. Thank you, Danger Slater. Danger's new book, Moonfellows, is out now. Check it out. Thank you, Rachel from Des Moines. We love you. Peace.